Matthew 6. That's better. I I cannot shout this morning. I don't know about you. I've had that crud thing all week. Uh, Monday and Tuesday, I felt like my head was about to go to outer space and blow off the top of my head. So I'm kind of here this morning as best I can with a voice. It may go out halfway through. Uh, So I don't want to shout. Uh, Let's read God's word together. I'll read. uh, You read along. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you, go, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret, sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For as your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, and then pray like this, verse 9. You may be seated. May we be blessed by the reading of God's Word. This morning's message title is The Art of Praying. And so Jesus here in this passage is going to get us ready to really look at how are we to pray. Uh, The Lord's Prayer we'll look at uh, word for word next Sunday. But before that, what... God is going to do through Jesus is to prepare our hearts. And so this morning is the art of praying. You know, the first uh, section of this passage of Scripture that we've been going through outside of the Beatitudes was the moral law. How are we to have moral righteousness? And so he gave us uh, morality. And as we talked about last Sunday, now Jesus makes the turn to talk about our religious righteousness. What does it look like for us to begin to practice the things Uh, in our religion that uh, our righteousness. And as we talked throughout the whole series, we'll talk again this morning, it's not about the things we do or the things we don't do uh, that that, uh, make us righteous. It's where it comes from, the heart. The heart is what makes us righteous. And so Jesus in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, is talking over and over and over and over again. There must be a heart change for us to really have righteousness. Uh, There's nothing that we can do. The prophet Isaiah says, even the most righteous things that we do in and of ourselves are but filthy rags to God. And so there has to be a heart change. And so again this morning, we're going to look at the art of praying through a change of heart. We'll look at uh, three, two things. And in each section, there will be the how to and the how not to. Uh, The first section is the audience. Who do we pray to and who do, you, do we not pray to? And then we'll look at the content of the prayer. What are we to pray? And how are we to pray? And then next week, through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll really get into what does it mean for us to really engage God. And so let's start with verse 5 this morning, the audience. Jesus is going to tell us who not to pray to and who not to be like when we pray. We see He says this again, And when you pray, you see, Uh, Jesus knows that we are praying people. Everyone on the planet is praying people. Uh, You can go into any high school, you get a test, every kid in that class is going to be praying. Right? I know I did my fair share of praying before I was ever a believer that I would just pass the test. Jesus knows He's going to talk to all of mankind, whether we're a believer, an unbeliever, a Jew, a Gentile, a Muslim, a Buddhist, all of the religions pray. We're praying people. And so he knows he's going to tell us when you pray, 
pray like this. And he, in this passage, is primarily talking to Jewish people. That's the context, the audience that Jesus is talking to. And so when Jesus says, when you pray, he's already talking to the Jewish people who pray three times a day. Uh, first thing in the morning at nine, then again at noon, and then at three. And this is what the people of the day prayed, the Jewish people. They prayed what we would call the Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five and six. The people of God, the Jewish people, the chosen people, would pray this three times a day. This is what they would pray. The Shema is what it's known as. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And they would say this over and over and over and over again. So Jesus is addressing them. And when you pray, he's now going to begin to unpack that and what that means even within the context of the Jewish culture, but even so for us. And so he, he addresses, he tells us who not to pray to. We're going to start with a negative, we're going to end with a positive in each of the sections. So who not to pray to, and who not to be like when we pray. He says this, and when you pray, you must what? Not be like the hypocrites. Circle that in your Bibles. The word hypocrites, as we looked at last week, just means an actor. Like a hypocrite, the, the Greek word for hypocrite means actor, that they would put on the outside what they were hoping that everyone, they would fool everyone. And so Jesus is saying to us, hey, when we pray, let's not be actors. He's going to continue to bring it back to the heart. It's amazing to me that in the most sacred places we'll look at, we looked at last week, giving, we'll look at this morning, prayer, we'll look at next week, uh, fasting. That even in the most sacred places, of our intimacy with the Lord is where Satan wants to attack us. And so Satan knows that if he can attack us in our prayer life, then we'll be drawn away from our intimacy with God. Uh, it's amazing to think when you look at Jesus' life, even Jesus himself, when he went away to pray is when he was tempted the most. At the very beginning of his ministry, before he ever went out to do public ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness preparing himself for what God had had for him, and ultimately for the cross. So even three and a half years before he ever went to the cross, Jesus is preparing his heart to do the work of the ministry. And where do we see Satan show up? Right at the very end. Right at the very end. That Jesus is having this intimate experience with God the Father, and Satan comes in the beginning of his ministry and attacks him through temptation. We see it again at the very end of Jesus' ministry that where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, who shows up? Satan again. And so to me, it's amazing that in our most intimate moments, our most intimate places, in our most intimate journeys with the Lord is where Satan's going to show up and attack us the most. Because he knows, Satan knows, that if he can disrupt that, then he can disrupt everything else. You see, prayer is simply this. Prayer is our communion and our fellowship with God. It's what one writer says. This is how one writer says about prayer. It is our way of tuning in to the will of God. So when we pray to God, we begin to tune into God's will, and Satan's want to distract us from tuning into God's will, because if he can distract us from turning, tuning into God's will, he'll know that we won't do what God's will is, we'll do our own will. And once we do our own will, all things go to hell in a handbasket. And so Satan is always going to tempt, tempt us in the most sacred places of our journey with the Lord. 
And so he says, don't be like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who just act. They're only doing it for show. And Satan's going to want to weasel his way in so that we become like the hypocrites and only do it for show. Because if we only do it for show, Satan knows that there can be no transformation through our hypocrisy. And so he's going to tell us three things. But the, the catcher is at the very end. He says this, do not be like the hypocrites. What do the hypocrites do? For they love to stand, underline that in your Bible, we'll get there. They, and they love to pray in the synagogues, underline that in your Bible, and in the street corners. Three things that we see the hypocrites love to do. Standing. Standing is, is, was a very normal thing. And so when we read that passage of Scripture, standing, it, that was not abnormal. Like I think a lot of times when we think of old, the old people uh, and throughout the Bible, we think of kneeling and bowing down. No, the posture of standing in prayer, you can see it throughout the Bible. So standing in and of itself is not what Jesus is going to talk about. It's not the posture that we take. Jesus does not care about our posture. We may see, well, maybe it's our posture. No, I promise it's not that. The next thing he says, it's, it's not about standing. The next thing, it's not even about the synagogues. Synagogues is, is just the church the most common place people would have prayed publicly. So he's not telling us, hey, don't do public prayer. Don't stand and pray. And the last thing he says, in the street corners. That, that word street in the Greek is the busiest section of town. It would be like for us going to the avenue and praying or going to the square in Murfreesboro and praying. Jesus isn't even concerned about those three things. He's not concerned about standing. He's not concerned about the synagogues. He's not concerned about the street corners. What is God concerned about? In the next line, it's, this is the most important part of the who not to and how not to pray. He says, do not be like the hypocrites who, who stand, in the, the, stand and pray and do not be like them in the synagogues and do not be like them in the street corners. What? Circle this in your Bible. That they may be seen by others. That's the catch of how we are not to pray and who we are not to pray like. You see that phrase to stand and to be seen, it, it shows us the heart of the hypocrite. The heart of the hypocrite is to be seen. That's the whole deal of an actor. An actor does his, his trade to be seen by others. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not concerned about your standing. I'm not concerned about you praying in the temple or the synagogue or the church. I'm not even concerned about you standing and praying in the street. What I am concerned about is that you do it to be seen by others. And so Jesus is telling us, that who is our audience? If we have the posture of prayer for an audience of man, we fail every time. We fail every time. And so Jesus is graciously saying to us, hey, it's about your heart here. Every time throughout the Sermon on the Mount, God is going to push us back to the heart. You see, it's a heart issue if I want to stand and be seen and pray to be heard by others. That's a problem. And that's a heart problem. Because I'm looking for validation from you. It's the same thing as what we talked about last week in our giving. If I'm looking for validation from you, even in the way I pray, there is a problem with my heart. There's not a problem with my actions. The actions come out of the heart. That's why Satan is always going to attack us 
with temptation because temptation always leads to sin and sin always starts where? In the heart. See, it's not the sin of praying out loud to be seen by others. That's the problem. The problem starts where? The heart. And so Satan knows if he can attack the heart and get you or I to sin, there's the problem. And so Jesus is going to say, hey, who are you praying to? This morning, when we pray, who are we praying to? It's a huge challenge even for a pastor to come up here and pray for us as a service. Am I more concerned about the words coming out of my mouth so that you will uh, understand what I'm saying? Or am I really praying and focusing my heart on God? Even in the most sacred place, the pulpit, Satan can distract the preacher from bringing the heart to God's people. How come? Because if he can distract that, he can distract all else. And so, who are we looking to when we pray? Who is your audience this morning? It matters. Our prayer life matters, and it prays who we're praying to. And so Jesus, right off the bat, says, do not pray to men. Do not pray so that you can be seen by others. Now again, I don't have time to unpack all that this morning, but we can see over and over and over and over again throughout Scripture what Jesus is not talking about is public prayer. He affirms public prayer. There is, a, uh, there is a purpose of coming together. He says when two or three are gathered in my name to pray, that's public prayer. So Jesus is not saying to us, hey, don't do public prayers so that nobody sees you. He's saying, where is it coming from in your heart? What are we doing what we're doing for? And so he says this. Then who are we to pray to? Verse 6. He's going to say the same thing again in verse 6. Don't pray like this, because when you pray like this, the very end of the verse says, hey, they've already received the reward. Verse 5. That's striking to me. That if I'm praying for you to validate me, and there's validation, that's where it ends. That's where it ends. And so Jesus says here, then this is who we are to pray for. Verse 6, it's to God. Again, Our fellowship, our communion with God starts in our prayer life. That's how what prayer is. Prayer is simply this: my communion and my intimacy and my fellowship with the Lord. And so he says in verse six, and when you pray, he's going to tell us a few things to do in our prayer life when we go to pray to Him. He says the first thing: go to the upper room. I love that Jesus says, when you pray, there's so much freedom in that to start with. That we don't have to have cookie cutter prayers. Like your prayer life can look however you want your prayer life to want. All God is saying to us through Jesus is just pray. There's so much freedom in that. And so many religions take the freedom of prayer away. Meaning that they have to do rehearsed prayers over and over and over and over again. We're going to get to that part in a second. Jesus doesn't want us to do just recite prayers. I often think to myself, I'll get to this next week in in the Lord's Prayer. Every time we would play basketball, we would say the Lord's Prayer. Now, being a preacher, a pastor now, 20-some years later, I think, what in the world was I doing? I really did not know what I was praying. I did not care what I was praying. I was just ready to go play basketball. It was kind of like the other night when I came home. Uh, Tennyson greeted that man at the door, the sweetest greeting ever. Hey, daddy, hey, daddy, let's eat, let's eat. And I was like, what's going on here? 
And I figured out, oh, if I eat, she gets to open presents. It was her birthday. She was not concerned about hanging out and having fellowship with me. She was more concerned about ripping into some presents. And I think so often, how is that true in my own life and my intimacy with the Lord? Like That's all I was doing when I was in 16, 17, 18 years in high school when I was praying before a basketball game. I, I just wanted to go play basketball. But for some reason, I thought I could do the voodoo magic and pray to God, and then God would let us win because we prayed. I, I don't, I'm not saying he didn't listen to us. I just don't think he was very impressed with us. How do I know that? Because the rest of the game was just hellacious. Nobody would have known we had prayed the Lord's Prayer about 30 minutes beforehand. And so for us, when we pray, what does that look like? What does it look like to us? How do we go and pray to God? He says in verse 6, and when you pray, go into your room. The first thing that we see is uh, the, the uh, New King James says the inner room or the, the, the sanctuary. That word, the inner room, the word room here in this text means the storehouse. I love that picture. That when we pray, we go into a prayer room, we go into a storehouse to pray to God. You see, what do we do in a storehouse? We store things up. So when we go to pray and we go into our room, we're going to the place that we've put things in place. We've stored things through our intimacy with the Lord. That when I go into my prayer room, whether it's your closet, whether it's your car, whether it's the sanctuary, wherever you go, you go into this place that you've stored things up with God. Is that what your prayer room looks like? That you've stored things up? You, you are preparing for His coming? Is the idea. Do we store things up in our prayer life? You see, do we have this expectation? We're going to look at this more in detail in a few weeks when we get to Matthew chapter 16. Do we store things up? You see, Jesus says this way, do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth, where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where in heaven, in your storehouse, where neither moth nor rust destroy, destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your, what, your treasure is, your heart is also. Where's your heart in your storehouse? Do we have this eager expectation that God's going to bless us? That's part of our storing up, that we take our petitions before the Lord and we lay our petitions out to the Lord with the eager expectation that he's going to answer everything that we take before the Lord. That's what he promises us. Now, here's the flip side to the storehouse. The one that I don't want to talk about. When we go into the storehouse, when we go into our prayer, prayer closet, it's one of the sweetest gifts that can be given to us when we pray to the Lord, is this thing that we call conviction. Now, we want to talk about all the things that we're storing up and getting ready for. We don't want to talk about conviction. Conviction is the thing that the Holy Spirit imparts on us when we've done something wrong. The only way that we've known something wrong is through the Holy Spirit. The only way we do that is through our intimacy with the Lord. So in your prayer room, when you're praying to God, are we praying for conviction? You see, conviction is the thing that's going to help shape us to become more and more like Jesus because conviction is what gets rid of the things that 
that take us away from being more and more like Christ. It's called sin. And so when I'm in my prayer closet, is there conviction happening because I'm crying out to a holy God? It's what John said at the very beginning of the, 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 the morning. What a sweet way to set us up for the morning. Are we in the presence of God saying, holy, 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 holy? Because if that's true, then God through his Holy Spirit will bring conviction to our places of our lives that do not reflect his glory. And so am I in my prayer closet, not just pleading and begging for God for his blessings, but am I pleading and begging for God for his convictions? That's convicting. Is my prayer life just shaped with all the things I desire and want? Or is there a backside to my prayer life that says, oh God, I don't want to be this way anymore. You see, it takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. What blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, being poor in spirit means, hey, I don't have it all together. And there is a God who has it all together. And therefore, I need his conviction through my prayer life to show me where I don't have it all together. It only happens through prayer. It only happens with my intimacy with the Lord. My ongoing pursuit to become more and more and more like Jesus. That is the reason that Satan is always going to distract us from being prayerful. Because Satan knows if he can distract us from being convicted, then we'll never have the conviction that leads to change. Again, God isn't concerned about the change of the behavior, he's concerned about the heart. When the heart changes, God knows that your behavior will change, which comes through the convictions, which comes through intimacy with the Lord, which starts with our prayer life. Is that true for you? Is that true for me this morning? The sweetness of conviction in your prayer life. That's one of the greatest gifts God could ever bestow onto us, is the gift of the Holy Spirit And the gift of conviction. And how often we as believers want to run from conviction rather than run to conviction. Do we run to conviction in our prayer life? The next thing that he says is this. Once you're in the upper room, what do we do? We shut the door. You see, shutting the door is going to keep out all distractions. Shutting the door is going to protect us from Satan, from his temptation. What happens when you go home at night? What do you do at night? I hope this is what I do. You may not do this. Uh, I shut and lock the door. I shut myself in, not because I don't want to get out, because I don't want anyone to come in. You see, when you and I are on our face before God, we're in the most vulnerable position we could ever be in. And so if we do not shut the door and keep out temptation, we're in great danger. You see, the greatest danger I'm in is in the middle of the night when I'm sleeping. I don't sleep with one eye open, nor do you. But so often we pray with one eye open rather than being vulnerable before the Lord because we haven't done the preparation to get into the storehouse and to pull the, pull the door behind us to shut the door, to shut ourselves in, to be intimate with the Lord. That's why you see over and over through the Bible, where did Jesus go? to the most isolated places. So that there would be no distractions around him. He knew that if he were to pray in this street corner, that everyone would be tugging at him. You see that throughout the Gospels. Everywhere Jesus went, someone had to be touching him. And so when Jesus wanted to get intimate with the Lord, what did he do? He retreated and went to a storehouse all by himself for protection. 
So do you and I, when we go into the, 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 the inner room, the, the storehouse, do we shut the door? Do we take all the distractions out of our life? Maybe it's your cell phone. Do we pray with our cell phones on? Do we pray with our telephones on? Do we pray with the TV on? Those are all ways to be distracted. Those are all ways not to shut the door, to protect ourselves, to protect our intimacy with the Lord. The last thing that Jesus says is this. He says, and this is how you do it. You do it in secret. Now what Jesus is not talking about is that nobody knows I'm praying. What Jesus is talking about, that word secret means that there's this intimacy with the Lord. That I'm in such engaged with the Lord that nothing else matters. The sweetest way I know how to explain this is this. I can think back to my wedding day. I did say day. Okay? My wedding day. When I was here and Jenny was walking down the aisle, that was one of the sweetest, most intimate moments that was done publicly, but done very in secret. I cannot tell you today where my mom was sitting. I can't tell you where her mom was sitting. I can't tell you where her dad was sitting. I don't know where my grandmom was sitting. I don't remember who was even at the wedding. I just remember, hey, it was hot and there's this beautiful, fine woman in front of me. That's kind of all I remember. So I was so intimately engaged with Jenny that no other distractions mattered. Why? Because I was in a storehouse and I was protecting what mattered most to me. And so what Jesus is saying is this, in our intimacy with the Lord, have we taken all other distractions out and it's done in such a secret, intimate way? Jesus is not calling us, hey, don't let anyone know that you're praying. He's just asking for intimacy. And then he uses this sweet word, Jesus does. Now that you've shut yourself in in the room and you've prayed, who do we pray to? To our Father. I know for some of us, the word Father can have so many negative connotations. But Jesus is calling us back to this child-father relationship. That, that, man, when I get to hold Tennyson and I get to hold Cedar, there's no other distractions for them. There's just this moment with them and me that they really believe that I am there for their very best. Like every day when I come home, it's the arms of cedar go up in there for me to hold them. That's what God is saying to us with our intimacy with the Lord. Do we throw our arms up to God and say, oh, God, pull me close. You see, because the heart of the father wants nothing else than to bless the child. That's all I want with my kids. I just want to bless them and bless them and bless them and nurture them and nurture them. And sometimes that means saying no to them. That doesn't always mean saying yes to them. And so what Jesus is telling us, when we're praying, we pray to our Father, is there this belief that, oh, God will take care of me? Even when He says no. Do we have such an intimate relationship with God that He knows it all and is ready to bestow all onto us? The psalmist says, God knows you, you want the desires of your heart? Great. God wants to give you the desires of your heart, but it comes out of your overflow of your intimacy with Him. Do we look at God as a father or do we look at God as a genie? It doesn't say, and when you 
pray, pray to your genie. It says, no, pray to your father. And he says what? Who sees, who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will bless you and sees in the secret. What that word means, sees in the secret, God knows your secret places. God knows your heart. You cannot fake God out. Like in your prayer life, you cannot fake him out. He knows when you come to him and you plead to him, he already knows before the words ever come out of your mouth whether those words are true from your heart or not. He sees the secret places of the heart. Which is the reason we need conviction. Because without conviction, our heart will always be skewed. In Jeremiah, it says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Well, how, does there be, how is there a transformation from that if the heart is deceitfully wicked from all things? How is there a transformation? Transformation comes through conviction. Conviction, again, comes through our prayer life. And do we believe in God the Father as our Father? And then he says this. After we pray to God the Father in the secret places, in our storehouse, He says this, he will reward you. Circle the word will in your Bible. That is a promise from God. And always, 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 God fulfills his promises to his people, to his children. He never holds back. We'll get that in a few weeks. God will always give us what he promises us. Now, the second half is the content. Okay, so this is who we aren't to pray to. This is who we are to pray to. So what are we to pray? How are we to pray? We're going to really look at that next week through uh, the, the, the Lord's Prayer. The first thing we'll see in verse 7 is how not to pray. And it's the idea of fake content or empty phrases. We see that in verse 7. He says this. He says, and when you pray, do not what? Heap up empty phrases. And so what we see is, this is how we aren't to pray, is to heap up empty phrases. The, the Greek word of empty phrases means this, idle or thoughtless chatter. Have you ever been around people that just talk to talk? Oh gosh, they drive me bonkers. I'm just like, man, just be quiet. Hush. But that never works. You, you see, when we just have empty chatter, the more empty chatter we have, the more exposes our hearts. You ever been around a person that that's all they do is just talk and talk and talk? You're like, man, holy cow, you're about the most shallowest person I've ever been around. I mean, I'm not saying that out loud. I'd love to. That's what's going on in my head as they're talking. Here's another great example for that. This is how I did it. Okay, I'm just going to be real honest. Don't judge. Y'all probably did it too. The, The greatest example I can do is when I was in college. The professor would come to us and say, okay, you got a 10 page paper to write. And I thought, oh my, I can write barely write a paragraph. And so what I would do is sit down and I would come up with the most fluffiest words, the most fluffiest language and write as long as I could and got to about two and a half pages and thought, "Uh uh-oh, I got eight more pages to go. And then for the next five, six, seven days, not hours, days, I would just type and type and type and type and type and type and type. And then I get to 10 pages and thought, I better keep going because if they they even get close to reading those first seven pages, I'm really done. I better keep typing. So I type and type. So what turned into a 10-page paper was really a 15-page paper, and all it was is just a bunch of fluffy words. And my hope was I could make the paper so long, it'd be so distracting that they would never finish it. 
I'm just being honest. And it worked a lot of the times. Because I look back on my papers now, I'm like, good night. If those professors read it, I would have flunked out. I mean, I almost flunked out anyway. But that's what the idea of our prayer life is not to look like. God is saying to us, don't just heap up empty words. I don't know if you've ever been around a person when they pray out loud. It's like, I'm like, man, my legs are starting to hurt standing up so long. And they just keep on and on and on and on and on. Maybe like you feel like I'm doing now. Sorry. And so what Jesus is saying to us is, hey, don't, this is not the content. The content isn't about how long you're preaching or teaching or praying, but it's coming from the heart. And if I'm doing the content, if I'm faking the content to impress you, I will always use way more words than necessary. Always. You can just look at how God, through Jesus, tells us to pray in the prayer uh, the Lord's Prayer. It's very short and simple and to the point. And yet so often, people get and they begin to pray because they're not praying to God, they're praying to people, and because they're praying to people, they're just using a ton of words. One of the writers I was reading said, there ought to never to be something called a beautiful prayer. I was like, what? And the more I began to read him, I'm like, yeah, because if the person is doing a beautiful prayer, I'm getting more caught up in the words than I am what they're praying. There ought to be beautiful uh, uh, books. There ought to be beautiful essays. There ought to be beautiful poetry, but beautiful prayers. Because what Jesus is saying to us and what he's going to get to in a moment is this, that if you are praying and I am praying with you, I don't even know what you're praying anymore. Why? Because I'm so engaged with the Lord with my own prayer life. And so if all we're doing is babbling, God says, no, 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 no. It's the same idea. It's back in 1 Kings. I'll kind of story tell in 1 Kings 18. If you remember the story, it's Elisha and the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal, there's this contest. Who is, the, who is God? Who is the real God? And so Elijah comes to them and says, hey, I know the living God. I know the holy God. I know the righteous God. And the prophets of Baal said, no, no, you don't. And so uh, Elijah said, okay, look, well, let's put God to the test. Let's put your God and my God to the test. And so he says this, let's take an altar, let's build an altar, let's put a sacrifice on the altar, and we won't set fire to the altar. We'll just call, you call on your gods to bring down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And you see over and over and over in that story, the prophets of Baal, they just had all these words. Just kept blabbering and blabbering and blabbering and blabbering over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then Elisha comes and he calls him out. He said, maybe your God's taking, he literally says this, maybe your God's in the restroom. Like, maybe your God's tired, he can't hear you, maybe you need to shout more. So they start shouting more. He's like, nope, he's still in the restroom. And then what does the prophet of God do? He simply says and prays a small prayer. And then this holy consuming fire falls out of heaven. He wasn't babbling with words. He got to the point. Here's what John MacArthur has to say. He says, it is not honest, uh, motivated repetition of needs or praise before God that is wrong. It's not that we keep going to God over and over. We, we see that with the, the parable where we, the persistent neighbor. Persistent neighbor keeps going to the neighbor. Hey, I got this guy coming. Help me, help me, help me. It's the parable of when we bring our petition to the Lord. Keep bringing it to the Lord. 
but it's the mindless, indifferent ritual of spiritual sounding and magical formulas over and over and over again. Not only must our hearts be right before God will hear our prayers, but also our minds. Our hearts and our minds must be right before the Lord. Thoughtless prayer, like mindless prayer, chatter, chaff, prayer, is almost as offensive to God as heartless prayer. In most instances, they go together. I can't have a heart full prayer and a thoughtless prayer. They go together. And so is my prayer life, is your prayer life full of heart and full of mind? Which takes us to, so what is God looking for? If God isn't looking for useless chatter, what is He looking for? He's looking for what we would call honest and honest request. We see that in verse 8. He says this, do not be like them, the Gentiles. The Gentiles, basically, they just recited prayers over and over, and they got more and more wordy and more and more heady. Uh, And so Jesus saying, don't be like the Gentiles. Do not be like them, as your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. It's an honest request. The only way to know an honest request is by being in the storehouse to know what your heart needs. Are we bringing needs to the Lord? Or are we bringing wants to the Lord? See, you'll know the difference between a want and a need when you spend time with the Lord. The Lord will convict you of what you do not need, which is a want, and give you what you do need. It's an honest request. You see, prayers are continual recognition of our neediness and our continual acknowledgement that there's a God who will provide. You see, are we bringing our honest requests, our honest needs before the Lord? It comes out of the Beatitudes. It comes out of our neediness. Do you know your constant neediness? You see, your neediness comes from what we talked about earlier, your conviction. Do you know how much you need the Lord? Are you, is your prayer life more consumed about what the Lord can give you or consumed with more about being in touch with the Lord? Is it more about the things He's created for you or is your prayer life more defined by you being intimate with the Creator, not with the creation? Here's the last thing as we pray. This is what Martin Luther says. I love Martin Luther. He says this. By our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are Him. You see, when we pray, it's more about us than it is about him. You see, God already knows. He's already just told us. God already knows what you need before you ever ask him. We're going to look in a few weeks this idea that there, there is a God who is willing to give and you're more valuable than even the sparrows. He knows. He has this desire to give it to you. And so our prayer life is more about us than it is about him. It's more about getting our hearts in line with him than him getting his heart in line with us. That's what Martin Luther is saying there. By our praying, we are instructing ourselves. It's a reminder of who we are and how needy we are. Is your life this morning marked with neediness? You see, the greatest thing, if you're not a believer here, your greatest need is a savior. 
You see, you, you can pray all day. If you do not know God, the psalmist says that God does not hear your prayers if you're an unbeliever. And so your greatest need is a Savior that opens you up to the God of the universe so that the God of the universe will engage with you in your prayer life. So if you're praying to God and you don't know God this morning, the only prayer that God will hear is your need for Him. Not your need for a new car, a new house, a new husband. God is more concerned with your soul than he is with whatever else there is that you're praying to him. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior this morning, your greatest prayer, your only prayer ought to be this morning, oh God, I need you. I see that I'm sinful. And because I'm sinful, I'll live apart from you forever. And so God, I need you to bridge the gap for me between hell and eternity. And if you're a believer here this morning, is your life marked with your great need for Him? If you're a believer here this morning, can you look over your, the last month of your prayer life and, and say to yourself, oh, the consistent prayer I have is for conviction to become more and more and more and more like Christ? Or is your prayer life more marked with all the things that you want Him to give to you? Because if your life is more marked with what he can give for you, you'll miss the greatest thing that he wants to give to you, and that's himself. That's the beauty of our religion, our relationship with God that sets us apart. That there is a God that wants to have an intimate relationship with you as Father. No other religion can say that. Is your prayer life marked with him being your Father or with your being a genie? Let us pray. God you are father and in being father you want to bestow onto us great blessings and the greatest blessing you want to give us is your son Jesus I pray that would be so true for all of us in the room believer and unbeliever God that our greatest treasure would be your son Jesus that every morning, every hour, when we get engaged with you through prayer, that our first prayer will, oh, give me more of your son Jesus. Make me more like him. God, I pray for us as a church that we'd be marked as a, as a people of prayer. But in that, God, we'd be a, a people that's marked with conviction. And through that conviction, God, we desire to be more and more and more like your son Jesus. So God, when we pray, when we pray as a church, God, I pray that you would transform us. God, that then when we pray, we'd be always reminded that it wasn't for you and your son, we'd be lost without a shepherd. And we would never take that for granted, God. We would never take for granted being found by you. 